Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. God, I'm, I'm really just realizing that this is one of those that could be obsolete by the time the episode drops in a few hours. No. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, Dara Lind. Really excited to talk about a, a fun white paper that, well, it's fun. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but first, it's, we use Norwegian administrative data. Ooh. Yeah, it's a, it's a game changer. Um, <laughs> but you wanted to talk about some of the latest news out of the border. I have seen two things happening. I have been traveling a lot. I have been working on some big explainers about airplanes and Joe Biden and things that are not totally connected to stuff Donald Trump tweets. Uh, But (laughs) it appears to me as a Donald Trump Twitter follower that he has said that we are cutting off all aid to Central America or at least to the the Northern Triangle countries that asylum seekers tend to come from. And also that he is strongly considering or once again threatening to completely shut down the border with Mexico. These are clearly thematically linked concepts. I don't really see what they have to do with each other or in particular what shutting the border down is supposed to accomplish in this context. Um, But like what is happening? I mean, I guess sometimes Trump says he is building the wall and declares victory on that. But other times... More of the time, he appears to be saying that there is a continued elevated threat level right. and we need to do something. So what well, is I mean, happening? Which, which makes sense because even noted builder Donald Trump knows that you cannot build wall in a day. Sure. But what has precipitated this? Like, did something so, okay. happen? Yeah. I, look, we are and we don't have the final numbers for March yet, but over the last year plus, like really going back to February 20, or sorry, to to fall 2017. Even though Donald Trump at the beginning of that time was still bragging about the early months of his presidency in which there hadn't been many people apprehended, there had been like an anomalously low number of people apprehended at the border coming into the U.S. without papers. Trump was still bragging about that, but like actual border agents on the ground, regional experts, started noticing that the number of apprehensions was ticking up again, particularly of families, particularly from Central America. That flow has increased uh, over the course of 2018. It wasn't really arrested by the family separation policy, if anything. The timing correlation works out such that it's possible that the end of the family separation policy allowed, you know, smugglers and the media in Central America to kind of disseminate the message that, like, you'll be okay if you come to the U.S. And so throughout the fall of last year, it began to get really elevated to the point of straining Border Patrol resources. And then from January to February of this year, it shot up. About 75,000 people were apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border in February Every indication is that in March it's going to be 100,000. That is not something that we've seen since the Great Recession a decade ago. Um, It's really – it's not a return to like the peak unauthorized migration of 2001, 2002 or so. But 
it's also really it's it's not anything we've seen for a decade. And so, so that's bigger than the Obama era. Was it 2014? Yes, there was like a big. It is for the last couple of months. It's been bigger than the 2014 spike. Um, and the and and you know the thing is that the 2014 spike, with the benefit of hindsight, we can say, oh, okay, that was just a couple of months, and then it right. like died down really rapidly. We don't necessarily know whether that's going to happen. There's no indication that it necessarily will happen mm-hmm. um, without policy changes. The, a lot of the reason that it changed in 2014, and this is something that we'll get into in a bit, is that Mexico started getting a lot more aggressive in cracking down on Central American migration. So that stopped a lot of people from coming in. But there really is a concern. I mean, some of the stuff that I've seen from other reporters about internal Border Patrol modeling is that they don't think this flow is going to end anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Typically, it does increase through the spring. And so if we're dealing with 100,000 people in March and then uh, more than 100,000 people in April, that's really not usual and it's not something the system is built for, especially because like even though 100,000 is still fewer than we saw under Bush and a lot of the time, the number of families coming in genuinely is, as far as we can tell, unprecedented in the history of American America. Yeah, so then I wanted to get into that because because you compared it to the sort of Bush, the the mm-hmm. mid aughts levels of, mm-hmm. of undocumented immigration. But is it is it still the case that what we're what we're seeing now is primarily families, primarily Central American, rather than primarily single men, primarily Mexican? Yes, absolutely. I mean. Over 60 percent at this point of the people who are getting apprehended are families. And as of, I think, February, if not January, like Mexico is now the third most common country uh, for for apprehensions, uh, where, you know, as late as 2014, it was uh, the most common country. The reason that this matters is kind of twofold, right? One is that the U.S. system is built for the processing of single Mexican men. Like, it's built to detain people and deport them really, really quickly. And that doesn't work when you have people who are claiming asylum. It doesn't work when you have children who are coming on their own. Both of those cases are cases in which, like, the law says you have to give people extra protections. And in practice, it doesn't really work for families uh, because of rules about what can happen to children in immigration detention, even if they're with their parents. The flip side of that is that border patrol in particular isn't in the business of immigration detention. So like even above and beyond these policy differences that make the way you're supposed to treat families separate from the way you're supposed to treat adults, the idea of keeping people in border patrol holding facilities, many of which aren't equipped to really hold people at all, like They've never really built, you know, Border Patrol stations out in remote New Mexico that are supposed to hold large numbers of people at once, much less children, has led to a lot of concern about the conditions in which people are being held. That's kind of the policy backdrop to the deaths of two children in Border Patrol custody in December. That's what sparked the outrage last week over photos of an outside, like, essentially, you know, just fenced-in holding pen in El Paso under a bridge where Border Patrol was saying they were just physically having to hold people because they did not have any other space to put them. Like, when we talk about the system being overwhelmed, that's what that means. And that's the other reason why it's so relevant that these are families, because the American public is a lot more sensitive to these kind of things happening to children. Sure. And now, so we're going to cut off aid to Guatemala? (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah. What is the... Um, So Donald Trump's theory... Because they're sending them here? Right. Yes. Donald Trump's theory of immigration, which bears very little resemblance to any reality that anybody else in his administration would say, but that is pretty clearly articulated through tweets and speeches, is A, governments send their people to the U.S. And conversely, that if governments really wanted to, they could stop their people from coming to the U.S. B, that there's really not any legitimacy to migration because people are mostly lying about why they want to come here. And if they really cared, they would stay and make their countries great again, which is a thing that Donald Trump has said. Um, And see that the way to stop migration is to bully other governments into stopping people from coming. That's both like home governments from stopping their own people from leaving and in this case, Mexico being a transit country. You know, this is actually, there are a lot of interesting dynamics here because the Mexican government under Andres Manuel López Obrador is 
grappling with what it means that Mexico is no longer a sending country for migrants, that it's now a transit country and increasingly a country of settlement for Central American migrants. And so there's a lot of very fragile positioning going on at the diplomatic level. And Donald Trump is just stepping all over all of that. Like, the... AMLO line is that it's the most important thing is to invest in Central America to, you know, to develop it, to have a 21st century Marshall Plan so that people don't feel the need to emigrate anymore. Donald Trump's administration has kind of paid lip service to, yes, we agree with Mexico. Mexico is going to help us interdict these migrants for now, and we're going to help Mexico invest in Central America going forward. And then Donald Trump will come in and say, these countries aren't doing enough to stop migration. We need to stop the aid. And as of this week, it looks like Donald Trump won out in that. You know, it, it there was never an argument that burst out into the open, but there were clearly Donald Trump was saying a very different thing from other administration officials. And now it is very clear that Donald Trump's line is the line that is setting policy on that. It, it's interesting also because um, there are a couple of kind of international corollaries in terms of Trump's understanding that governments should be preventing uh, migrants from leaving. You know, sure, there've like been East a, Germany. Yes, uh, the, which is, I mean, but also more recently, you know, the German government has been paying multiple African countries to basically restrict the movement of migrants out of those countries, right. which is in Europe's own reaction to the migration crisis. But what's interesting here is, and I think that you know, I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Dara, because I think the first thing people we're talking about on Twitter with regard to this particular policy is that won't this make everything worse and thus give Trump kind of carte blanche to crack down on the quote unquote caravans that a lot of people are arguing would result from cutting off foreign aid and thus present the opportunity for Trump to be in the views of many, even more draconian on, on this particular issue. But so it seems to me that you could you can conceptualize the Central American aid migration linkage in a couple of different ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like one is you could you could envision it literally, right? Like, is it actually true that these countries are like sending people north and that we need to punish them to get them to not send it? And like, no, right? Like that's false. And then in some sense, you know, if conditions on the ground were better in Central America, you would expect on the margin fewer people to leave. So I've seen a lot of people offering the kind of hot take that like, ah, Trump is only going to make things worse here. On the other hand, right, like when you look yeah. at what, what Jane said, like at the, at the European situation, like you can, in fact, bribe countries with weak state institutions into jailing their population for you. Yes. Uh, if you want them to. Yeah, it, it, and you probably... With a great deal of money and right. a really restrictionist policy. Right. And as a developed first world liberal democracy, you probably wouldn't want to say that that's what you were doing. But something like a, here, we will give you this very generous economic development plan, but also you might lose that money if too many people end up leaving your country. Like, that could work, right? Like, obviously, what Trump is doing on Twitter is not like subtle diplomacy. But on one level, I think like focusing on like how literally erroneous it is can be a little bit misleading. Like you really could imagine a universe in which the governments of Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador are getting generous checks from the State Department. I mean, relatively, these are small and poor countries like the U.S. can afford to give what would be a lot of money to those governments. And then those governments spend money on, sure, some of it's on economic development, maybe some of it's on the rule of law. Maybe some of it goes into, you know, general's pockets or, or whatever happens. And then like a lot of it goes to, yeah, like cracking down on people's ability to leave. Like that is a real situation that could arise. And if it were to happen, there would probably be some disapproving investigative newspaper articles and people being like, ah, oh, that's not really a good thing to do. But, you know, how upset would the average American be, right? Like, people can get very emotional about images of children being kept in cages and poor living conditions in the United States, supervised by American jailers. But the odds that the people having those emotional reactions would have 
similar emotional reactions to just like things you might hear about situations in Guatemala are pretty low. Well, we already know that that's the case, right? Because there hasn't been a whole lot of U.S. concern, of domestic concern within the U.S. about the U.S.'s policy of increasingly returning Central American asylum seekers to wait in Mexico, despite the serious concerns there about the commitment of the Mexican government and the ability of the Mexican government to keep them safe. Like, there absolutely is a very big out-of-sight, out-of-mind bias going on here. But while your general take is like, yes, that is a thing that could happen that the U.S. hasn't tried, the fundamental part there is the part where you'd have to spend money to build state capacity to stop people from leaving, right? Like, it's not something you can just do on the cheap. It's something that if you don't have, if you're the kind of central government that doesn't have the capacity to guarantee the basic safety of your residents, you don't have the capacity to prevent them from leaving. And so, like, that's the the kind of double it's not it's not a double bind but like when we talk about security aid yeah in theory that could be used for nefarious ends but if you're building that state capacity and successfully coupling it with like rule of law anti corruption stuff you're doing only a little more work. I mean, it's harder work. Right. But like, it's not a ton more work. And you're also making it easier for people to live in their home countries without jailing them. So this is, it's actually a little bit useful to disaggregate the three, what are called the Northern Triangle countries here that we're talking about. Because Guatemala is kind of the country where the spike has been the most precipitous over the last year or so. It is the country that has traditionally had the least problems with gang violence and total impunity and skyrocketing murder rates, what is happening there is a combination of really, really crushing poverty, not least due to climate change, and a backsliding government that is resisting corruption reforms, literally kicked a UN anti-corruption body out of the country, reportedly using U.S. jeeps to do so, and that has been cracking down a little on indigenous and land use activists, which intersects with the poverty thing. That's the kind of complicated situation in which the U.S. has not necessarily been very good at intervening on the side of human rights in Central America, to say the least. And it's also not a situation in which people fleeing that are going to necessarily have the strongest asylum claims. Poverty, even crushing poverty, even starvation, is not a legitimate grounds for asylum in the U.S. Honduras is a more complicated situation because Honduras does have more of a gang problem. Um, And then there's a question of of El Salvador, where there's been a really big drop in unauthorized migration since last summer, uh, which has been totally, you know, obscured by the spiking numbers from Guatemala and to a lesser extent Honduras, and where, where the aid was most concentrated under the second I guess, like the last five years or so. So there have been people pointing to that and saying, look, El Salvador is evidence that aid actually works. Mm -hmm. That may or may not be true, right? Like there have been studies focusing specifically on unaccompanied children coming to the U.S. that there was one by Michael Clemens at the Center for Global Development uh, that was pretty robust and showed that the locations in El Salvador that had, or across those three countries, but like particularly with El Salvador being the one where the most investment happened, um, that had a drop in 10 homicides over the five-year period. That drop in 10, 10 homicides was associated with six fewer people from that community coming to the U.S. That like, at least when it comes to sending children to make the journey to the U.S. alone, whether they are going to get killed or whether they are slightly less likely to get killed than they used to be does in fact appear to be a relevant factor. And security aid can have a pretty direct impact on homicide rates depending on how it's done. So like, that is possible. The broader does aid reduce migration question is a lot fuzzier, both because aid doesn't always work. Um, You know, a lot of it does get redirected. It's really hard to guarantee the outcomes that you're seeking. And also because if you put a little bit of money on people's pockets on the margin, they're going to use that money to migrate (laughs) Uh, because the little bit of money they can get by staying there isn't nearly as worthwhile as spending that money to get much better money in the United States. Especially to the extent that the concern, the quality of life concern, has a large public safety 
element, right? I mean, because El Salvador has been one of the most dangerous countries on earth for a while now. And and while it's a relatively poor country, it's it's not even close to being the poorest country, right? I mean, you know, the, the economic situation and the crime public safety situation have a relationship to each other, but they're not identical, right? Like if somebody plopped you down in an incredibly unsafe place and then handed you some money, like you would use the money to leave the unsafe place, not just stick around and be like, this is great. Come rob me. <laughs> like that's. And, and this, this is a big problem, frankly, that, you know, it's really it's been easy for both the well in, until a few months ago for policy elites on the left and right to agree that oh well the real problem is that we need to address the root causes of migration and so we need to have these robust partnerships with central america we need to be increasing our like co-policing co-security efforts and we need to be giving them some money so that they can stop people for you know so that they can like make it easier for people to not want to leave that was a very easy consensus it didn't necessarily reflect what was actually going to address the problem even in the long term and certainly not in the short term. And so what we're seeing right now with these really rapidly increasing levels of apprehensions and rapidly changing patterns of smuggling where, you know, new tactics in fairly high speed bus routes through Mexico are le leading to people coming to different places, sick children and, uh, and sick adults being more likely to get transmitted through because it's less dangerous to take the journey if you're a little bit sick and you're only going to be on a bus for five days as opposed to walking through Mexico for six weeks. And so there are lots of things on the ground that are shifting really rapidly. And the kind of slow, steady root causes stuff, as easy as it is to agree to in theory, doesn't necessarily address the problem. Does that mean that cutting it off addresses the problem? Like, obviously not. But it's a little bit harder to say that cutting it off is going to automatically make it worse just because there are so many factors on the ground. Let's take a break and then let's talk about Mexico. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. Okay, so these migrants are coming not from Mexico, which is to say they're, they're not Mexican, but they come through Mexico. Right. Um, and Mexico is a big country. <laughs> um, there is a, a large distance throughout the country of Mexico between Guatemala and Texas. And... Am I right to think the, the idea of shut the border down is not that Trump is concerned per se that 
there's like Central Americans hiding in trucks at the ports of entry. It's a way to punish Mexico to get them to do something. It is not totally clear why Donald J. Trump would like to shut down the border. It is something that he's been very, very fascinated by for a long time. One kind of gets the sense that it's something that his advisors have told him would be a bad idea and therefore he likes it more. Like CNN had a report yesterday that multiple times there have been briefings at the White House where Donald Trump's officials have told him what an economic disaster it would be to do what he wants to do at the border. And like he has gotten those briefings and he still really, really wants to do it. Like you do kind of get the sense that this is an idea that he has had that no one has successfully been able to talk him out of because he's convinced that he understands the right way to negotiate. But it's not really clear whether this is a strategic, like an effort to punish Mexico in his mind or whether it's just a I want to look tough or whether it's, you know, my base is going to love it, or some combination of the three. Trump officials are coming out saying, you know, this isn't to punish Mexico. We don't, it's not a punitive thing, or, you know, it's 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 not to, Jared Kushner's out saying it's not to pressure Mexico, it's to pressure everybody. Mick Mulvaney's out saying it's not punitive at all, it's because we need to shift the resources. That's also what DHS officials are saying. So, like, Wait, when shift we the talk resources about, to what? Right, so, so this is, so... When we talk about, quote unquote, closing or shutting down the border, Donald Trump can't shut the border from asylum seekers. Like, he can't stop people from entering the U.S. illegally. Obviously, if he could do that, he would have done that already. He actually did try a version of that uh, last fall when he tried to write an executive order that would make it illegal for somebody who was caught crossing between ports of entry to claim asylum. According to a federal judge, U.S. law says you can't do that. So, like, you can still cross into the U.S. illegally uh, and get caught and then get deported, or you can still cross into the U.S. illegally and claim asylum, like, regardless of whether the border is, quote unquote, open or closed. What Trump can actually control is the ports of entry where people and goods come through legally. And so, The assumption, and, you know, I'm probably going to start using this in my writing instead of closing the border, is closing ports along the U.S.-Mexico border, either all of them or some number of them. DHS has already said that they are so stretched thin in terms of taking care of and apprehending migrants in custody between ports of entry that they're going to need to shift some of their port officers to help take care of that. Like, they're shifting... I think some 750 or so. And you're already kind of seeing the effects at the ports. There were like two and three hour delays in El Paso yesterday, Uh, people trying to get in because it turns out when you have fewer people at a port of entry, you can't get people through as easily, right? Like that makes logical sense. Um, And DHS is saying, well, that's what Donald Trump means when he means shutting the border. He means like it would be a last resort effort. We'd have to be moving our people elsewhere. If this problem gets worse, we'll have to shut some ports down entirely because we'll have to reallocate those resources. That's also what McMulvaney is saying. You will notice that Donald Trump isn't saying anything like that, right? He's saying he's going to shut down the border for a very long time and that it's going to make the U.S. money. So the question here kind of in the immediate future is if Donald Trump was the one driving the bus on A, Who's driving the bus on, you know, border closures? Is it the DHS people and Mick Mulvaney who see it as a, you know, a thing of last resort because they just need to have these port officers doing other things? Or is it a deliberate, we are going to show you who's who move? What do you think? <laughs> I, I I genuinely don't know. I think that that's it's always interesting and it's a continuing theme of the administration having to backfill on what Trump says while trying to make it, you know, you'll have administration officials saying like, no, 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 this is what he means. And then Trump will tweet something and be like, no, that's what I meant. And it it's, must be extraordinarily frustrating in when you are attempting to actually do the thing to have your efforts to do the thing undercut by the person who's telling you to do the thing. I mean, I I was speaking recently to a former uh, senior official in the Trump administration, and he was positing pretty clearly that Trump's preferred approach to these kinds of things is to make kamikaze doomsday threats, right? That you will take something that would be ruinous, right? Like shutting down 
cross-border traffic between the U.S. and Mexico. Be harmful to the American economy. It would be harmful to the Mexican economy. It would probably be more harmful to the Mexican economy than to the American economy. And to then create a situation in which the madman Donald Trump keeps saying he wants to do this crazy thing, but Trump's aides are restraining him. And then those aides can come back to their Mexican counterparties and be like, we're holding this guy back, but he's crazy. Everybody knows he's crazy. So like, you got to give us something to work with. And the the former official I was talking to, he was not a fan of this strategy exactly. I mean, he said that it was annoying. It made it hard to do things. It was kind of irresponsible. In his opinion, it wasn't really necessary. At the same time, he said that like, in his opinion, people in the press are a little too credulous of this idea that like the president has no idea what he's talking about or he's just ranting and raving on Twitter, that like this is a bargaining strategy that has pretty clear parameters to it and that like he is trying to get AMLO to turn the screws in southern Mexico on dispersing groups of people and and stuff like that so that this problem will go away. So here's the thing about that. Um, on one level, you know, just playing, just threatening the kamikaze card has itself economic implications, right? Like, yes. The extent to which businesses freak out when you even breathe a word of port sl- slowdowns, never mention port closures, like, you know, we talk a lot about regulatory certainty when well, we I talk about this, businesses. This is, this is like, why I'm saying no, 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 my former right, administration right. official wasn't like, I think this is a great but like, idea. But I, think right. it's, but I think it's especially important when we talk about something like this where Donald Trump has been threatening it for, you know, off and on for a while. And now there appears to be a little more oomph behind it that, like, there are going to be different business operators who are going to have different levels of, you know, risk tolerance for how many threats do you assume are just bargaining chips. The other side of this, though, is what is Mexico actually doing in southern Mexico? Like, the AMLO administration has been, at pretty much every turn, extremely cooperative with the Trump administration on immigration enforcement and interdiction. They've been not quite as willing to take large numbers of Central Americans back under this, you know, wait in Mexico policy as the Trump administration might have liked, or at least that's kind of the sense that you get looking at what the administration says is going to happen on this versus what actually does happen. But it looks like the administration is going to start doing this on a much more widespread basis. And, you know, or at least they're saying they're going to start ramping up the number of returnees from like a few dozen a day to a few hundred a day. And so we're going to see if Mexico is okay with that. They're you know, they've been interdicting large groups coming through the U.S. As a matter of fact, in January, they took a group that was about to cross into the U.S. to claim asylum, put them in an abandoned factory facility. And then after a few days when that got untenable and there was a little bit of unrest there, dispersed them to cities further away from the U.S. border. Like, it's not exactly like AMLO is just letting them through, right? Yeah. The one thing that you can point out is that when AMLO came into office— he instituted a policy of making it much easier for Central Americans to get hum- temporary humanitarian visas that were going to let them go through the U.S. or let them go through Mexico to get to the U.S. That policy was disastrously successful. They clearly did not realize how many people would be signing up for those. And they ended it within right. a month. And like the Trump administration appears to believe that they're still seeing the effects of that as uh-huh. people who had gotten those visas come through. But like it's not like you can tell AMLO, please go back in time to December and undo this thing. Sure, sure. And even over the last week, like in last week, they announced that they were deploying the military to this isthmus uh, in southern Mexico where it would be easier to kind of contain migrants. The Mexican Last military. night, yes, yes. Last night, they uh, took a group of a few hundred migrants and put them on buses and arrested them. They've said that they're giving very limited humanitarian visas to people coming in now, like basically only kids and older people and people in other exigent circumstances. Like this broadly, you can possibly say, is the result of Trump administration pressure insofar as like there was administration pressure before last week. But the military deployment happened on Wednesday night. Trump's latest Twitter tantrum started on Thursday morning. So like 
If this is a let's get AMLO to play ball play, it is showing very little sensitivity to actual steps that are being taken in the interim. And it's happening at the same time that they're cutting off aid, which, remember, that's kicking sand in AMLO's vision for Mexico becoming a leader in the region. So, like, it's totally possible that this is, you know, threatening AMLO with a very big stick, but you've also taken away his biggest carrot. So if this is kind of a a genius approach to dealing with the AMLO administration, that's something to, to bear in mind. I really respect your willingness to act in good faith that this is 87th degree chess. I don't I don't think that I I just think even if it is 87th degrees chess, we should recognize that there's also another chess player at the table. Yes, exactly. The logical endgame of this whole drama, it seems to me, is that under the next Democratic administration, AMLO is going to build a wall on the border with Guatemala and make the United States pay. I mean, that's basically what we were doing under Obama. Like the amount of effort spent, you know, I I said at the beginning of this episode that we were going to get back to 2014. Like what happened in 2014 was the Obama administration put a lot of pressure, but also a lot of resources towards helping Mexico secure its southern border. And the results were not ideal for human rights on the order of some like 100,000 migrants, you know, disappearing over the next few years and reports of Mexican police torturing them, et cetera. Um, but they were very good, at least temporarily, for stopping people from coming to the U.S. That that seems to me like where this is probably headed in right. the long run. If you have people who are a little calmer about what they're actually trying to pursue here. Um, okay. I think we better take a second break. Um, and then talk about lesbian lesbians. Norwegian Norway. lesbians. Yep. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So our white paper is called What Causes the Child Penalty? And it's from Statistics Norway. And it's a paper that talks about same-sex couples living in Norway and potential policy reforms as relates to closing the wage gap that frequently occurs um, after women give birth to children. And the paper found that while women in heterosexual couples experience a drop of income of approximately 22% Uh, following the birth of their first child, and this drop stays the same over time, their male partners don't experience a child penalty. And this has been something that a lot of academics have been looking at. But they noted that with same-sex couples, specifically lesbian couples, that 
while there is a child penalty of some kind, there's a 13% drop in the income of the partner who gives birth, and the their partner experiences an income drop of 5%. But with lesbian couples, the mother who gives birth catches up with her partner around two years after, and from that point, after about four years after birth, there is no longer a child penalty. And with same-sex male couples, there is no income penalty of any kind. And so, you know, that makes sense. Obviously, the the populations we're dealing with, there aren't that many same-sex couples with children, let alone same-sex male couples with children. So I think that there's an important a layer of context in talking about who are these couples and how childbearing works for queer couples. But it is interesting in talking about how specific policy changes that took place in Norway have impacted uh the child penalty, including paternity leave, maternity leave, and just how those changes have impacted specifically same-sex couples. Right. I mean, you know, I think the the background finding here, right, is that we we often look at, you know, wage gap issues in the United States and sophisticated Vox readers, Weeds listeners know that that wage gap is almost entirely accounted for by children. And then the the further sophisticated thing to know is that other developed countries have an identical sort of wage gap. And so whatever the policy realm is, right, that would alleviate that, it is like outside the scope of the differences between the United States, Norway, Sweden, wherever it is you want to go. And so what's interesting is that so now the Norwegians have found like a change that does change this, right, which is not an expansive welfare state, Right, because we've seen from the international that it's not that, but it's that if you replace the father with a non-birth-giving second mother, that gets the job done. It's true. I mean, I I think this this sounds pretty straightforward to me. (laughs) Although, in fairness, they are seeing in this paper a certain amount of reduction in the child penalty from early subsidized care. So it's not exactly like— Right, I mean, it's not—but it's just—it's still big, right? Like, in Norway, which is very generously provisioned— Country, right? I mean, you are you are really seeing here that gender identities and gender roles and norms are driving a large change in behavior with big labor market impacts. Right. But I think there's also, and I think the paper does get into this a little bit, that there is some additional context with relation to who these couples are. Uh, it noticed that... Um, In general, partnered gay men on average earn less than partnered heterosexual women, but partnered lesbian women earn more than heterosexual women. And I think that that also plays into, you know, if you are a partnered lesbian couple or a partnered gay couple, um, how having children works is a lot more of a— deliberative process. And so I think that that adds into some element of context because— I'm trying to think of how best to put this. In general, lesbian couples do not traditionally have children accidentally. And so I think that there is an element to which that by the time lesbian couples are prepared to have children and are starting to make that process happen, they they perhaps are in a better better financial standing than per, uh, a heterosexual couple might be. So it's interesting that you're putting this in terms of like a financial cushion question, because I can also see it playing into kind of internal division of labor and gender roles within a relationship, right? Like if you've been going through this process of deciding, do we want to have a child? How are we going to have that child? Who is physically going to bear that child? Those conversations are going to make it easier or at least more obvious to bring up conversations about who will care for the child after the child is born. When do each of us plan to go back to work? Is that going to be – is – is getting, you know, making it back to where we would have been without having a child an important goal in either of our careers. Those are things that, like, obviously come up in the context of figuring out which one of us is going to carry this child, if either is going to carry this child in their womb. Right. Whereas it may not come up 
until actual conception or later in a partnership where you haven't had to be going through all of that planning. Right. Of course, that does mean that the opportunity for future research here would be looking at divisions of labor and child penalties in couples that have struggled with infertility. Exactly. I think that that would be a really good point. I also think that this is, again, something that fascinates me about this particular line of research. And they the paper mentions Obergefell, uh, the Obergefell v. Hodges Supreme Court decision. The, the conversations we are having about the children of same-sex couples are conversations that were only really possible in a lot of countries. To, we could start having this cup, those conversations in the last 20 years. Obviously, you know, queer couples have been raising children for a very long time. Um, but I think that the ability of to do this kind of research is relatively new and is still reflective of same-sex couples who decide to, you know, stay partner and decide to have children are generally of a like of a different socioeconomic status. Now, that's not always true. The state in the United States with the highest number of LGBT couples raising children is Mississippi, which is not noted for being a economic powerhouse of this particular country. But you do see in a you know, in a lot of cases that queer couples who have made the decision to have children and do have children tend to be more economically, if not stable, kind of prepared for that. And I will say that, you know, on a personal basis, like when you are in a queer relationship and start having conversations about how one would like to have children, there are a lot more deliberations and decisions to be made, which I think is great because I think that deliberations are helpful. And, you know, you you as Dara was saying, you don't have the like, oh, well, obviously this will just happen because nothing is obvious when you're queer. <laughs> I do. I mean, Matt, like framing this as a policy intervention is cute and all, but like, I don't know. Is there an actual policy lesson out of this that there's something in, you know, that, that there's some bundle of, like, mother things that mm -hmm. policy needs to look into figuring out how to replicate? Or is it just a question of, you know, re-socializing men? I think that it is a little bit erroneous, actually, to focus so much on pure gap type issues rather than on actual questions about parental and child and maternal well-being, right? I, I think that the, the concept of the gender wage gap took off under a presumption that you were looking at a kind of crass discrimination, mm -hmm. right? Um, and what the research has mostly revealed is that you are not, in fact, seeing that. And then we have a lot of pressing questions in the United States around care of young children and the parents of young children. And I think that the way this conversation has gone, right, sort of started with people saying, well, Nordic countries have like a much more humane approach to dealing with young children and their parents. And that then the gender wage gap kind of like swerved back in from left field to kind of shut down that conversation about humane treatment of important vulnerable populations. It's like, well, this doesn't even eradicate gender inequality in earnings, which I, I guess is true, right? But it's achieving something very important, right? And the, the insight to me that like, this goes away with same-sex couples, it shows importantly that like this is in fact about the household division of labor, right? And that like if families renegotiated these outcomes differently, you would have a different outcome there, right? And that, that is a much, much, much stronger lever than like how does the daycare system work? Uh, but the daycare system is still a powerful lever about, you know, like people's time and opportunities and, and well-being and things like that. The question of should governments try to like re-engineer heterosexual couples to follow the norms of <laughs> queer ones, you know, is interesting. I don't know that like I've seen a really like compelling like proposition for like this is how we're going to get that done. I um, mean, according to the data, 
you know, they, they make the point that while comparing the outcomes of children born to same-sex and heterosexual couples is not the focus of this paper, they do present evidence that children of same-sex, mostly lesbian couples, have higher math, English, and reading scores, and the effect is significant to the 99th percentile for English and reading. So well, I'm just saying. So I guess the you, answer here is to do a lesbian version of Queer Eye, but with parenting? Yes. Oh, Yes, absolutely. This needs to, <laughs> that's actually a good idea. Like, that would be an interesting show. I, I actually think that it is probably true, right, that there is a lot that straight couples could learn from queer couples who are raising children, right, because they are having explicit conversations that the person who gives birth to the child doesn't need to be the quote-unquote mom. Right. Because in the, you know, the, the gay couples that I know with kids, you know, they do have a division of labor in the household, right? But it's not a gendered division of labor, quote-unquote, at least the ones I know. Obviously, there's a lot of different kind of arrangements out there, but, like, people split these things up differently, but there is a different nature to that, right? Both to how it is negotiated internally and to how it is received socially, right? Because, like, it is very much the case that, like, Jose's classmate who had two dads, like, she really did have two dads in, in a certain, like, mm-hmm. profound sense that mattered for how the parents related to each other, you know, and, and other things like that outside the household. And it has been striking to me as a parent, like, how much of life sort of tends to fall back on, like, gendered socializing types of things, like moms making plans together and, and dads. And then it's like, we're like, well, how, how come, like, we didn't see this one girl? And it's like, oh, because she's got two dads, right? Which isn't like people are shunning them, but, like, they were cut out of the mom's loop and the moms were doing all that kind of work, right? So it's like, oh, <laughs> Which maybe. itself says something about Right, <laughs> no, it does. So then, it, it, but it, there are, like, various layers of these kind of inequities. And I think it would be probably enlightening to just, like, hear more about these experiences and, and what comes out of them. It's true. You're going to tell me? No, I, no, I, I, I have not <laughs> yet. <laughs> this, this sounds like a great opportunity for the Weeds Facebook group to tell, you know, like queer parents of the Weeds, tell us about your queer parenting experiences. Yes, yes. I like it. Yes, and also for a eventually queer parent that is me, I am also deeply interested in this <laughs> because one of the funny things about being a queer person in the year 2019 is that you now meet queer people with children. And when I was a tiny child growing up in Ohio, that was not a thing I thought that would ever happen. So hearing the experiences of others is very helpful, both on an individual and larger basis. I like it. Let us know. Let us know, please. Um, That is is a really good use of the Weeds Facebook group. I'm excited. We're all going to learn something. All right. Uh, Thanks, guys. Uh, Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will return on Friday. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.